Well, if you're just joining us, uh, the last several weeks we've been looking at, last two weeks actually, we've been looking at this prayer of Jesus. And what we've been doing it leading up to Easter is we've been looking at the prayers of the Son that go to the Father. And there's a lot of times when Jesus goes to pray, he just tells us he wanted to get away to pray, wanted to get away to pray. We love those places, but we're not really often privy to those prayers. But there are some places that we are privy to those prayers, and those prayers for us have been recorded and then canonized into Scripture. Now we can read them and study them 2,000 years later. And that's what we've been focusing on. I want to know, what did the Son say to the Father? And what we've been specifically looking at last two weeks, and then we're going to look at today again, is what's called the high priestly prayer in John 17. And this is, this is moments before he goes to the cross, hours before he goes, before he's crucified. And this is his longest unbroken prayer by far that we see anywhere. And so I'm like, what did he say? What did he say in that? Now, we just as a side note, we call it the high priestly prayer. Jesus didn't call it the high priestly prayer. When you look at your Bible, things like chapter headings and chapters and verses, those were put in much later. They're super helpful, but not a part of what we would call the canonized scripture. And so we see high priestly prayer that was put in by somebody else later, but rightly, I think rightly titled, because Jesus is our high priest. Now, if you think about the Old Testament, the three main offices of the Old Testament are prophet, priest, and king. Prophet was a representative of God to the people. The king oversaw the people civilly. And then the priest was a representative of the people to God. That's how they kind of interacted. And so when we say that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. But really when we see that the reason why this is called the high priestly prayer is because what the priest would do is they they would at some level mediate between God and people. That's why they're the ones doing the sacrifices, because they are, they, are, they are carrying out the sacrifices. They are representing the people to God. And what we see here when it says this is his high priestly prayer, what, what, when it's titled that, and I think rightfully so, what it's saying is in these last moments before Jesus goes to the cross to mediate for our sin, he's actually mediating for us in prayer. He's going before the Father. And you would think, if you were going to experience this great tragedy, this great trauma, I don't know about you, but I know about me. Like, I would be the focus of that prayer, right? I'd be like, oh, God, just give me the strength. And we're going to hear him say this, like, give me the strength, these sorts of things. But it would just be uh, oh, prayer for all these. But what we see with Jesus, he's praying for his disciples, continually interceding for them. He says, Father, may I be glorified, glorify your son that he may glorify you. But then he goes right into his disciples. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see then he prays for not just the disciples that were there with them, but actually the, the leading off even words this morning is like, I'm going to pray for all of those who come, which is you, which is me. You know, sometimes people say Jesus was thinking about you when he went to the cross. I go, well, I don't know all of the things that were going through Jesus' mind when he went to the cross. But I know this. Because it's recorded in canonized scripture, he was talking about you. He's talking about us in the moments that led up to that. And so we're going to see that this morning. And, and what we saw in, 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 in week one was that Jesus said, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. We said that Jesus is most glorified. God was most glorified in the cross. More glorified in the cross than he was the resurrection. Why? Because when, when God's character is revealed, he is glorified. And the more clearly his character is revealed, the more glory he will receive, right? And so we see this in Scripture. You probably even see this in your life. The more clearly God reveals his character to you, the more glory he, he's, he receives. 
And so he said, glorify your son that your son may glorify you, which actually means that Jesus doesn't even glorify himself, but the father is going to then glorify the son. And then what we saw last week as he's giving an account of his life and his ministry. He basically just tells the father, father, you entrusted me with these people. You entrusted me with this word. And I did what you asked me to do. I gave this word that you gave me to the people that you gave me. And often I think what we think is that Jesus came and he just, he whipped the world up into a frenzy and there was great crowds and there were great crowds, but as if Jesus generated all of this, but he didn't generate it. And all he's saying is, I, go, I took the word that you gave me and I gave it to the people that you gave me. That was his ministry. He had this work that God laid out for him. He carried it out. One of the things of his work, the, the main thing of the work was to die on the cross. But one of that also was I gave you a people and I gave you a word. And you're accountable for giving that word to those people. And so now this morning we jump into the last part of this prayer. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 20. He says this. I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples that he's with. I don't ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. And so he shifts this prayer. And sometimes you can do that in prayer. You can shift. I was praying about this. Now I'm praying about this, God. And he goes, I don't pray just, just for these people in this room. But I pray for everybody who will believe because of their word. Which is like, hey, that's you, that's me, that's been, that's been Christians for 2,000 years. And so the prayer that's going to flow out this morning is going to come specifically on this. I am praying for those who are going to come and believe with, believe their word. Now, if you notice something here that should really catch you off guard, this idea, but I don't pray just for those, for these only, but I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word, to which you should go, wait a minute, whose word? What has Jesus been saying up into this prayer? Your word, your word, Father. Father, the word that you gave me, the word that you gave me, I gave to them. Your word, your word, your word. Then he gets to verse 20, he says, who will believe in their word. And I go, why doesn't he say, for all of those who will believe in your word, Father, that you have given them, that they may believe. But he doesn't say that. He goes, all that will believe in their word. I thought about that. that there's, there's something that happens in Christian maturity where God's word becomes your word. And not this place of like ownership of like, oh, I own that or that. No, but like this place of submission. This place of like slowly, it's like a slow burn. As I, as I bring my life, and hopefully continually so, under the authority of Scripture, it increasingly becomes my word. And it's not that I'm the source or the originator of it, but actually the, its, its source and origination is, is greater than me. But I'm bringing myself under it, and as I do, then I become like, that. yeah, that's my word. Somebody once asked me, we were, it was a new Christian, and... and uh, she said, I, I believe in the Bible, love Jesus, Christian, everything. And she asked me once, she goes, Josh, what, what do I believe about this? And I thought that was just a curious question. And really what she was saying in that was, was I believe what the, what the word of God says. And whatever it says is what I believe. And I know that, I think that you know what it says. And so would you tell me, what is my word? Because this is my word. 
And I go, that's, that's, what, what an amazing like maturity to say this is my word. And so what he says here, he goes, everybody that will believe in their word. And so really becoming your word says, I value the things it values. I say the things it says. And I understand that this is truth and reality more than what I know to be truth and reality. And so when I pray for these disciples only, I pray for all of the disciples that are going to come, all of the people that are going to be coming because of their word. He goes on then in verse 21. That they may all be one. So this is the prayer. Because I'm praying for these people that are going to believe. This is the prayer. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so he prays for them. He goes, I want them to be one. And he goes, and I want them to be one in a sense. I want them to have unity in the sense. And what he's giving us as an illustration, he goes, I want them to be one in the sense that the same sense that, Father, you and I are one. We say the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is, I want them to experience the kind of relational unity, Father, that, that we experience. And I go, isn't that how we, you know, we, we look out on the Church of America? Don't you just kind of look at the Church of America, step back and go, I sense the Trinity's here. <laughs> right? Exactly. Right now that's what I'm thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't think that at all. I don't step back from the church and think like, oh, this is like the Father and the Son together. To which be our, should be our first alert that something's wrong. Because what he's saying goes, I want, I want the kind of unity that they have, like we have, Father. I want them to experience it. I want them to experience it with us. So there's this, they, they have this unity with us. But I want them to experience this unity with each other, with one another, that they would be one. And he's praying this right before the disciples are about to scatter. Would they be one in the same way? Now here we may pause and go, oh, I think so what Jesus really wants is he wants, he wants us to be one. I go, yes, but there's a greater purpose. What was the purpose? The so that. What was the so that? So that the world may know that you sent me. So that you, the world will know that the Father sent the Son. In other words, this is not unity just for the sake of unity so that we can sing Kumbaya and circle up and feel really good about ourselves. This is actually unity for a purpose. This is a unity with a message. And the unity with the message is that the Father sent the Son. It's interesting because a lot of people think that the Christian journey be- begins. The Christian journey begins when you trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And I would say maybe that's where spiritual birth begins. I think it's a huge place. But really, I think if you're, if you're thinking about Christianity, the first question you need to ask yourself is, who sent Jesus? Or on whose authority did Jesus come? It's interesting, the, uh, by the way, that's not a new question. The question was asked uh, 2,000 years ago. Some of, the, uh, some of the priests and the elders came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, by whose authority do you do all these things? 
I mean, he was doing some great things. People were he- being healed. He was, he was teaching things. He was, I mean, he was, he, was, he was showing authority, authority over God's word, authority over God's creation. But whose authority did you do all this? And Jesus, in classic, in classic form, do you know what he does? He says, I'll answer your question, but you answer my question first. And by whose authority did John the Baptist come? And then they, okay, hold on. They huddle it up. I'm paraphrasing and reading into some things right now. They huddle it up. And they go, well, here's the problem. They go, if we say that John the Baptist came on behalf of God, then he's going to say, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe what John the Baptist had to say about me? He's the, John the Baptist was the one that said, he, here comes the one, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. And so if we say God, he's like, they're, they're going to like, he's going to be like, then why didn't you believe in what he said about me? But if we say he came just as a, as a, like on behalf of man, he goes, this crowd is going to lose their mind. Why? Because they had like experiences with John the Baptist that they felt like was a connection with God. And to say that this connection with God was nothing but a, a man thing, these people were going to lose their minds. And so it was like, we can't say God, we can't say man. And so you know what they say? We don't know. We don't know. But it's interesting that they don't say that they don't know because, because, because they don't know. They say that they don't know because they are afraid of the implications of either of the answers. There's a big difference between those two. In other words, I'm going to like read into this now. Their I don't know wasn't one of ignorance. Their I don't know was a cop-out. I'm afraid of the implications of either one, and I, so I don't know. It's interesting. I think things have changed over the last 2,000 years, but I go, some things haven't. Now, who's Jesus? Nah, I don't know. Nah, it's a cop-out. Because really what you're afraid of is you're afraid of the implications of either one of those answers. And so what you're doing is like, well, I don't know, because well, that's convenient. That, that's actually in our culture. That's acceptable. But, but, the, but it's still, it was a cop-out 2,000 years ago. It's a cop-out today. And so what Jesus is saying here, he goes, my, my prayer is for church unity, but not just church unity for kumbayaness. I'm, I'm praying for church unity that they may know that the Father sent the Son. And so then he goes on in 22. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory that you have given to me, I gave to them, that, we, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. We've been saying that God is glorified when his character is revealed. And then Jesus comes to this place. He says, glorify, well, earlier he said, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. But then in this place he says, um, I gave them the glory that you gave me. To which I could probably preach, do you know, do you know that you share in the glory? You share in the glory of Jesus, that he actually has given you the glory that's been given to him? To which you may even take down a note and go, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. But to which I may ask you the question, what is that glory? You go, I don't know, but it sounds really, really good. And if Jesus has it, then I want it. What's the glory? What's the glory that Jesus has given to you? Like, do we share in like 
people worship Jesus, and so then they worship us? Like, no, that, that, that's a different religion. Uh, that's not what he's saying here. What is he saying? I go, well, to answer the question of the glory that he shared with you, we need to back up the question to which we'd ask the question, what's the glory that he gave to the Father? Because he's saying the, the, the glory that was given to me by the Father, I just gave it to them. If John says, Josh, I bought you a present, I got you something, and I say, John, what is it? And he says, well, I'm not going to tell you, but I'll tell you this. It's the same thing that Jeff got for me. I could say, John, well, tell me more about it. He's like, I'm not gonna, I, could, I could make guesses. I could say, I think it's this. Is, 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 how big is it? Or I could do something else. I could go to Jeff and say, Jeff, hey, what would you get John? And I know that the answer to that question would answer my question. And so the question is, what's the glory What's the glory that the Father gave to the Son? Well, Jesus, now that, he's very clear about. He says things like, I haven't done anything other than the things that I see my Father doing. I have come to do the will of my Father. I have come to do the work of my Father. I have come to say the things that the Father has said. I, 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 if you see me, you have seen the Father. And so really what we, we see when we talk about the glory that, that, that the Father has given the Son is that the Father said to the Son, I've got work for you to do. And you're going to go there and you're going to work in the sense of like you're going to reveal who I am through your word and through your deed. And when you reveal me, I will be glorified. And so we see this in Jesus' life. And, it, as, and he even says it in the beginning of this prayer, I, I manifested your name. And you were glorified. And so we see, what we see is that we see this glory that he gave, that he, the, the Father gave to the Son was this work to do in both, in both, in both word and both deed. And now Jesus is saying, I am giving that to them that they may share in it as well. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, now what does Jesus say? Now I want you to go. And we might even say things like, we want you to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the mouthpiece of Jesus. We want you to go and, and, and manifest Jesus to the world. That God has a work for you. And the work for you is going to reveal who he is through your word and through his deed. And when that happens, he will be glorified. But even sort of along the lines with that is that you will share in that glory. Well, how does that happen? Maybe God, I'll give you an example. Maybe God is um, working with you through, through patience and anger. I'm sure that's nobody in this room, but uh, just imagine it. Imagine it. I know it's going to be hard to get there, but imagine it. Patience and anger. You go, man, I've got, got a short fuse. And God's like, he's been convicting you about patience and your anger. And why does he say that? He goes, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a patient God who is slow to anger. And I want you to be a patient person who is slow to anger because that's who I am. So you hear God working. And really the way that he's doing this, he starts frustrating your ways. And things don't go your way. And you, you can feel yourself becoming impatient. And then either somebody reminds you, God reminds you, his word reminds you, you need to be patient. You need to be slow to anger. And you're like, oh, okay. Time passes. You commit to this. God works in you through it. And then at some point you just realize you're more patient and slower to anger than you were before. 
And what you realize is like two or three years ago, somebody may say something about you like this. Hey, look out for them. Be careful. They're nice to you now, but they got a switch, I'll tell you that. And so you can't trust them. They flip that switch, everything changes. And so enjoy this, but just know that this, it won't last. And you might even catch wind of that to which you would be ashamed. But then as time passes and God works in your heart and God works in and through you and then you hear somebody say to you, you're the most patient person I've ever met. Do you even get angry? To which you think to yourself, I could tell you stories. But isn't there sort of like a pride that wells up in you? And not a bad sense of pride, but like a That's awesome, because that wasn't true three years ago. What's happening there? I'll tell you this. You have met, because it's true of God, it's true of you. God is glorified when his character is revealed. His character is now in you. And being revealed in you. And now you are getting to share in that glory. And so, why does he do this? Why does he share the glory? That, that, may, that they may be one. That's what he just said, right? I, I've given them the glory that they may be one. Why does he want them to be one? So that the people may know that the Father sent the Son. That's the, that's the deal. I gave them glory so that they would be one. I want them to be one so that they would know that the Father sent the Son. So this idea that this glory, this idea that when, when there is a community of people who individually abide in Jesus, who are manifesting that Jesus to one another, the natural outpour is going to be unity. And the natural response of the unity is going to be this identity, identity of the Son, that has, he has come from the Father. He goes on. In 23, we're not even done. he's not done yet. I and them and you and me, that the world may become perfectly, perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And I love this. He's like, in case, in case God, you missed it, if he hasn't missed it, in case you, reader, have missed it, I'm coming back to it. The reason why I want them to be one is that they would know that the Father has sent the Son. And, he goes, and then and, if that's not enough, and that, that you love them, it says here that you love them in the same way. You love them even as you love me. You know, I may ask you a, a question, I may ask you a question, something like, do you think that your Heavenly Father loves the world? To which you would give me a, yeah, of course he does. Know that my Heavenly Father loves the world. And I might ask you the question, do you think that your Heavenly Father loves you? Now, we're in church. He'd probably give me a reluctant yes. Like, well, I know that's true. I don't always feel like that's true. But I think that that's true. Yeah. But we're less, it's interesting. We're less confident in in that answer. But if I were to ask you the question, do you think that 
he loves the son. The father, your heavenly father loves Jesus, the son, more than he loves you. I think you'd go, well, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean does, does the father love the son more than me? Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. That's an easy yes, except for it's unscriptural. Because it's just what he said, right? He just said, you, you love me, and uh, you love me, but, but you love them in the same way. To which I, I might, like, you might be like, yeah, I think maybe God loves me more than that other person. But then you go, no, that's not true. He loves that other person just as much as he loves you. You think that's hard to get on board with? What about he loves the son just as much as he loves you or he loves you just as much as he loves the son? Do we, do we see that love? That love is palpable. That love is, you can taste that love. You can see that love. You can see the uniqueness and the specialness of that love. And then Jesus says, yes, yes, you love them in the same way. And so not only have you shared in the love, but you have shared in the glory it's one of these, one of these crazy like, concepts of Christianity. Then he goes on in 24, where he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. For what purpose? To see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And so earlier he actually had prayed, and, he's, and I still think he, he goes, I, I want you to leave them here. That's what we saw last week. Leave them here. I want you to leave them here in this world until the, basically until the time has come. But really, I, do, I want you to leave them here, but not because I don't want them with me. I want them here because they have a work to do. And when that work is done, then they will be with me. But really my desire is that they would be with me. But the reason, interestingly enough, he goes, why, do you, why does Jesus want, because they're, oh, Jesus, Jesus is not saying to the Father, I want them with me because they're awesome. I mean, I just... Father, I thought about doing life without these people, and I'm like, I can't do that. And so would you please bring them here with me? That's not what he prays. What does he pray? He goes, I want them to be with me. Why? Why? He says, so they can see my glory, and they can see the love in which you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, this verse taken in isolation could make Jesus sound like some sort of like egomaniac, right? Some sort of self-centered Jesus. Why do you want them with you? Oh, so they can see. Really? Truth be told, I want them here so they can see my glory. They can see my, they can see my, to see how much you love me. It's kind of like when somebody like gets a, a brand new, nice, nice, nice car. And they go, oh, you should come see it. And you're like, yeah, but like, I think you're just showing, because the more I see this, the more I, I realize like how bad my car is. And the more I see this, the more I, I envy and that's not good. But is that what Jesus is doing here? What has he just said about the glory and the love? Because what he says, I want them to be with me so that they can see the glory and so they can see the love in which you love me. That's why I want them here. But what has he just said about the, Lord, the glory and the love? He says, basically, I, I, I'm, sh- I'm sharing it with them. You've loved me the same way, and I've given them the glory. And so why would Jesus want them with him to see his glory and to see the love? Well, I think it's because I want them to see what it is that they actually have. And if they could see, if they could see what is actually theirs, I think everything would be different. Because the glory that I have is theirs. 
the love that I have is theirs. And if they could see it, really see it, I think that would change everything. I think it's much more like, like if I go to Yosemite and I call you on the phone and I try to describe the waterfalls to you, I'm like, oh, it was a record year of, of water flow this year. I mean, I'm telling you right now, water is rushing in. You might be able to get a picture of it, but then I might say something like, I wish you were here. Why? So you could too see what I see. So you could experience the very thing that I experience. I want you to share in me. I want to share with you in, in uh, this experience. And so Jesus is like, I want them to see my glory. I want them to see my love, the love that you have for me before the foundation of the world, so they actually know what is theirs. Verse 25 and 26, as he closes out the prayer, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known your name, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so Jesus says, these guys know the truth. That Father, that you sent the Son. I want the world to know the truth. And I have come that the love that I have may also be in them. One of the reasons why it's such a selfless act of Jesus on the cross, not just because he died for, the, for our sins on the cross, the innocent died for the guilty, but, but, but even like, like to, to fill that out even more is he goes, I have come to share with you what's been mine always. I've come that I would share, like you would share in the glory with me. I've come that you would share in the love with me, that you would share relationally with this relationship that has been going on before the foundations of, of the world. I've come to share all of this with you. And he says this whole thing. I'm going to continue to do this. I'm going to continue to do this. He's going to do this in the garden. He's going to do this uh, while being beat. He's going to do this on the cross. He's going to do this at the resurrection. He's going to do this at the ascension. He's going to do this when he returns. He goes, all of this, I'm going to make your name known. The people that they would know, and not only would they know the love, but they would experience the love, that the love that you have for me would be in them. That's the purpose of unity. See, if all a church ever ever does is just unify for the sake of unity, but never invites other people in to experience that unity, which is what Jesus is doing, then we just become a holy huddle. We become satisfied because we get to share in the glory and because we get to share in the love. And the fact that other people aren't sharing in the glory or sharing in the love that's okay with us. The problem is that wasn't okay with Jesus. He already had the glory. He already had the love. The only reason he came was to share it. And now he's saying, I, 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 I share with them the glory. I share with them the love so that they would be unified so that in their unity they would realize that the Son has sent the Father. Now, I go, well, 
Isn't this a compelling and beautiful image of evangelism? See, we think about like evangelism as this idea of, of indoctrination. But maybe evangelism is more about invitation. Right? Inviting people in. Maybe it's less about, evangelism is less about people embracing correct doctrine as it's maybe more that broken, broken people embraced by those who have correct doctrine. This is what Jesus is saying. I want the world to know the way in which you've loved them. And so I've shared my love. I've shared my glory that the church may be unified. Be one. Because there's going to be something that happens in that unity that's going to, com- it's going to communicate something true about me. And they're going to believe that the Father sent the Son. I mean, I, I've, I've been in churches. You've seen churches. You've walked away from churches. That go, if that's what God is like, I want nothing to do with him. And you go, what happened? And I'll tell you what happened. Just what Jesus is saying. They weren't sharing in the glory. They weren't sharing in the love. They probably experienced zero church unity. And people go, there's no way Jesus can be right. Like, this, this is not true. But the opposite is true, and for which I pray is true of us, right? Is that you go to a community where they share love with one another, they care for one another, they share a glory. There is a unity, and people walk away from that and going, yeah, I think the Father sent the Son. I think Jesus is right. I think it's I think it's I think it's true. It's interesting because there's great concern right now between the church and culture and about how do we reach a culture. And the church and the culture, you've probably heard me say this before, but the church and culture, they are, they are, they are parting ways. There's lots of fear and concern in the church. Even how do we reach a culture? How do we reach a culture, interestingly enough, that is increasing in love of itself So self-love and self-glorification. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. I'm going to love myself more. And when when I love myself more, people even tell you this, right? If you love yourself more, uh, you'll you'll get more self-glorification. And so how do we reach a culture that is steeped in self-love and self-glorification? Now, there's a couple of ways we could try this. Uh, one, you could say, well, you know what? We will really play to that self-glorification and self-love. They come here. We will teach them how to love themselves more. And we will teach them how to get more self-glorification. Hey, hey more look at me's. But that would be broken. That would be, or we could do what Jesus said. Interestingly enough, Jesus and this last prayer, what is his concern? That the world will know that the, that, the, that the Father sent the Son. That's his concern. And everything else is leading into that idea. The Father sent the Son. Father sent the Son. In this prayer, he does not say things like, so Father, would you give them, would you give them spectacular children's ministries? 
God, would you make sure that the preaching is, is just spot on spectacular? Would you make sure that the worship is dynamic? Would you make sure that they have great coffee and good lighting? Nice sound. Huh? Now, are those things important? I think they're important, yes. I love dynamic worship. I try to be, I try to be honest and preach God's word. Love good, you know, love to care for it. But that's not what Jesus prayed. How do we come, how, how do we come against a culture that is, that is steeped in self-love and self-glorification? And Jesus' response here is you, you offer, you experience, and you give them something dramatically different. In, in, a, in a culture that is, so it's interesting, in, in a culture that is, is increasingly self-glorifying, self-loving, is increasingly disunified. What do we do with that? Jesus says, you, you share my love, you share my glory, you experience my unity, and people will know that the Father sent the Son. So I go, that is what we do. And so this passage here I think is brilliant. The risk is staying the obvious because it's, it's so relevant today and, and relevant today and increasingly so. You know, there's all these projections. You can read them all over the place. They, they really freak out Christians. But they go, oh, you know, in 20 years, if the trajectory holds true, in 20 years, in 30 years, in 40 years, the church will be irrelevant. To which I go, false. Well, actually, it, it could, it could, it, that, would, that statement would be true if and only if self-glorification and self-love was adequate enough to fulfill humanity's desire for meaning. And hear me on this. If that's true, if, if self-love and self-glorification are enough to carry the day for humanity to achieve fulfillment and meaning— then not only will Christianity lose its relevancy, Christianity was never relevant. Because it's making an opposite statement. It's saying, actually, that's empty. It's shallow. You think the waters are deep, but they're not. To which I would say, there is going to come a day, personally for you, personally for the culture, and cult- uh, corporately for the culture, well, they will realize how shallow and how broken and how unfulfilling the self-love and self-glorification is. And it may only come after disunity rips us all apart. And what does the church do? Really? The church does what the church has always done in history. Which is they come in, they share the love, they share the glory. They, they offer them a unified community that believes that the Father sent the Son. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the power and just insight and providence of your word and your prayers 2,000 years ago. 
And as we are entrenched in a self-glorifying, self-loving world, relationships, marriages, families, workplaces, may we be different. May this church community be different. May we be a community that shares in your glory, that manifests you to each other, that we would, we would share in your love, that we would experience the love that you have for the Son, and then we would love others in the same way, that that would bring us to a place of unity as a church community, and that people would know, Father, that you have sent the Son You have sent him to die for us, to redeem us. He was our our substitute on the cross and to conquer death through the resurrection. May we be a different voice in a culture that so desperately doesn't know how shallow the water it is in which they're trying to swim. May we offer something different, radically different that would communicate your truth. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.